How many of you know somebody who has been praying for a significant move of God? Just wave at me. Well, we are on the cusp of a very, very significant move uh, because we just don't have that much time. Uh, Jesus is going to come back for real, like, like not a game, not a joke, not a, uh, not a, not a thing to play with. Uh, so I believe if revival is going to come to our nation, it will come because, and all through history, uh, all the major revivals come because a certain group of people just decide they want God more than they want anything else. And when you do that, uh, things begin to happen. I'm going to get into the word here really quickly tonight because we've got a long way to go and a what do they say, a short time to get there, watch old bandit run, you know, but anyway, uh, we have a long way to go, many of you that hear me on Sundays and Wednesdays, you may hear a little different side of me tonight, uh, there, is, there is something shaking in the spiritual realm that uh, we want to be a part of, amen? amen, we want to experience the hand of God in our life, but uh, so I don't forget, I want to uh, introduce a, a couple of people. One of my best friends in the whole wide world is here. Him and his beautiful wife, they're wonderful, wonderful friends now for about 15 years. Uh, powerful ministers of the gospel, both in song and word and all kind of different ways. But would you guys just give a big God bless you to Brother LaShun and Kadisha Lambert who drove up? Stand up, guys. Hey, glory. Glory, glory. Oh, wait, I'm not the only one with a tie on in here, so that's good. Listen, they had to drive through Houston, which means they're going to get a double blessing, right? And then also, uh, you know, you have family, but then you've got the family that you like. And uh, none of the family I like could make it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you have the family that you like and enjoy that, like, you know, you would be friends with even if you weren't. Uh, related, and uh, my cousins are here who uh, we've lived life together as long as I can remember, uh, literally, as long as I can remember. We were vacationing together and, and all sorts of wonderful things. They're powerful uh, ministers of gospel in their own right. They have, they've raised three wonderful children. They're about to be grandparents, which is totally crazy, uh, about to be grandparents. Uh, all their children serve God, love God. Uh, they are just, yeah, come on, give them a big hand. <laughs> Ministry is spelled W-O-R-K. Uh, so Ronnie and Kim, would you guys stand and just let us say we love you. Give them another hand clap. Ron and Kim Walker. My mom's niece and nephew. So uh, open your Bible, if you would, to Hebrews uh, chapter number 11. Probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, this whole weekend, which, by the way, uh, if you miss any, any of the services, don't miss tomorrow. Frankie Mazapika is going to uh, just do a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And by the way, do you love our praise and worship team at all? Do they do a good job? But the entire theme of the weekend is expect God to do something good. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. This is God. For he or she that comes to God must, diligent, must believe that he is, 
and, everybody say and, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's impossible to please the Lord our God without faith. It is the key component to pleasing him. And anybody who comes to the Lord has to come under two distinct categories. The first category is you have to believe that God exists, that he is. So you're here on a Friday night while there's football games going on and all kind of stuff. So I think we can surpass the idea or pass up the idea that you believe God exists. Uh, however, there's a conjunction there. And the Bible says that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So to get to God, you not only have to uh, believe that he exists, but you also the Bible says here, have to believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Some of you may come from a background where you didn't realize God was a rewarder. Well, you have to look at it through the eyes and the lens of a good father. You see, a good father always wants to reward uh, his children along the way of their life. He always wants them to benefit and do well. Uh, so that being said... Uh, you have to come to God with the understanding that he's a rewarder. And when you begin to understand that, now you have the opportunity to expect God to do something good. Something is going to change in your life this weekend. And a part of that is going to be because our expectancy is going to begin to increase. We're going to begin to expect God to do something good in our life. We're going to begin to expect God to do something powerful in our life. We're going to begin to expect God to change some things in our life. You know, sometimes we pray about God changing things around us when in reality God is wanting to change us and then the things will follow after. But most oftentimes it comes because we have to get to the place where we are anticipating God to do something good. Everybody say, expect God to do something good. If you follow that one uh, precept in your life, outside of salvation, of course, passing salvation, you begin to get an accurate depiction of what God is really like. Uh, we're going to go back in time to the time of the prophet Elijah in the Bible. And Elijah was a very interesting prophet. He was... Uh, had a lot of swagger to him. He had a lot of uh, overwhelming uh, uh, confidence and strength at times. Yet other times he would be found running uh, from people and hiding. But the Bible says that he prophesied into uh, existence a drought because the Lord told him to. And there was no rain. And there was a king named Ahab who was married to a lady named Jezebel. And they did not like uh, they did not like Elijah. They wanted him dead. And Ahab and another guy named Obadiah will have a, a test immediately after service, and spelling will count, just so you know. Uh, but Ahab and Obadiah went out and were looking for a place that they could find some water in the middle of this drought that the man of God had prophesied at that time. And the Bible says that uh, Obadiah ran into Elijah, Elijah ran into Obadiah and said, hey, go get your king, go get Ahab and bring him to me, I want to talk to him. 
And Obadiah didn't want to do it because he was scared the king was going to kill him. And he, uh, Elijah convinced him to do it. So now uh, the king, Ahab, meets up with Elijah. And Elijah says, what are you guys looking for? He says, well, we're looking for some water and uh, trying to find a place to feed our flocks in the middle of all this drought that you prophesied. And everybody's all mad at Elijah. And, and finally, Elijah has a great idea right in the middle of everything. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah, Elijah had this great idea. He, he had this idea that why don't you go get your prophets of all the other gods and bring them and we'll meet at a certain place and just me, uh, just me, we'll have a bit of a contest. And we'll see, in fact, who is the ruler of the roost, so to speak. And uh, when he did, uh, the Bible says that he goes and gets 450 prophets of a demon named Baal. I say demon because any false god is actually a demon. That's all it is. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. Uh, It's completely uh, subordinate to the name of Jesus Christ. But 450 Uh, prophets of a god or a demon named Baal, and then 400 prophets of a god named Asherah. And and if you look think about it, it's kind of like uh, the ultimate showdown or the ultimate ultimatum because Elijah says that uh, he came to the people, verse 21, and says, How long halt ye between two opinions? One translation says, How long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And the Bible says the people answered him, not a word. So if we're looking at this, you've got one man, one man standing for Jehovah God, his righteousness and his goodness in the face of 850 prophets who are telling him how strong their God is when, in fact, they don't even serve a real God. Uh, I, if you look at it, it would look like 1 versus 850 would not be fair. You're exactly right. They did not have near enough prophets to overcome even one man of God. My Bible says one will put a 1,000 to flight and two will put 10,000 to flight. So when he saw 850 people, he said, I got you guys outnumbered. So he has this idea, why don't we see who's who here? If God, if my God, the God of Israel is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. So he comes up with this great plan, which I'll paraphrase for the sake of time. He says, let's get two bulls. Matter of fact, you guys can pick whichever one of the two bulls you want. Let's prepare the bulls for a sacrifice. You put them on your demon altar, and I'll put them on the altar of God. And then we will see whose God can send fire from heaven. In other words, I don't care what you think you are looking at. 
I understand you think you have me outnumbered. I understand you think this bad report is going to change whether or not I serve God. I understand you think this business decision is going to change my life. I understand you think that my situation's going down. I understand you think somebody said something negative about you, but I'm not interested in what everybody else thinks. I'm interested in who goes through the valley of the shadow of death beside me so you can pick the bull. He walks the bulls out and uh, brings them both up and they, they decide they're going to have their little uh, get together. And, and, and the Bible says that 450 of the prophets of Baal began to prepare the offering uh, for their demon. And uh, while they did this, the Bible says that Elijah began to prepare the offering for the Lord, the sacrifice for the Lord. Now, I don't want to get graphic, uh, but I have processed animals from on the hoof all the way to the dinner table, and it's not a clean process. Some of you have been living for God, and you feel like it should be a cleaner process. But the reality is, if you're going to be on the front lines, you might get bloody. If you're going to uh, uh, work your land, you might get some dirt under your fingernails. Living for God is not the cleanest thing you can do from a standpoint of effectiveness, but is from a standpoint of what you may uh, uh, experience. However, living for God is the only way that you can, in fact, benefit from being washed in the blood of the Lamb, which washes you white as snow. So they got the two bulls, and you've got 450 people working on one, and you've got one guy working on the other. And again, if you're doing this by yourself, sometimes if you've ever been like me, you feel like, oh, just like Elijah, I'm the only one left. It's only me. Nobody understands. Nobody. I'm the only one left. Well, all I can tell you is we never saw Elijah stop and complain while he was working on what God called him to work on. So given that scenario, even when it seems like the easy way out, when there's 450 fish swimming and floating downstream and it looks like they're enjoying the Guadalupe River, sitting on an inner tube, having the time of their life and God has called you to swim upstream and God has called you to press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ. I don't care if 450 people are doing it differently. You do what God tells you to do and in due season you will reap. So the Bible says that they take the sacrifice and they get theirs ready and Elijah even lets them go first. So all these uh, witches and warlocks uh, they begin to dance and prance around their sacrifice to their pagan demon. And while that happens, you would not be shocked, but no fire fell from heaven. So Elijah, being super cool, he decides he's going to uh, poke and prod them a little bit. And he begins to tell them, oh, interesting. Maybe your God is asleep. You should yell louder. Oh, interesting. Maybe he stepped out for a minute. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe you should yell even louder. And they began to yell louder and they began to do all kinds of different things. But at the end of the day, nothing came from heaven. And now it came time for Elijah to put his money where his mouth is. Elijah knew one thing. 
with God, you can always expect him to do something good. He's going to show us how to diligently serve him. Verse 30, Elijah said unto his people, come near to me. And the people came near to him. The Bible says he repaired the altar that was broken down. Everybody say repair. Anytime you see an altar, especially in the Old Testament, it's always symbolic of spiritual life. There was a, a broken down spiritual life in Israel. If it was a car, it would be on the side of the road with steam and smoke coming from under the hood, not able to go anywhere. And sometimes, if we're really honest, even though we're in church, so it's hard to. If we're really, really honest, sometimes we feel like our spiritual life is broken and in shambles. So Elijah says, here's the thing. I know how you feel. I know what it looks like. But I want you to come very close to me. And the Bible says that he began to repair what was broken. He began to get all the materials that were necessary to see something, to have something prepared that God could use, to have something prepared that God could uh, uh, bless, to have something prepared. In other words, when the fire came, he wanted to be ready. You see, there's a couple of different sides to the coin. And one is, I'm believing God to move. I'm expecting God to move. And there's a whole other side of the coin that begins to act like he's really going to. He says, come close. I want you to see what I'm about to do. And the Bible says Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob or Israel. Unto whom the word of the Lord came. And he says, Israel will be your name, Jacob. But he took 12 stones and he began to piece together the foundation for the altar. He didn't just haphazardly place them because when it comes to the Lord, nothing is in our Bible by happenstance or by accident. When he said 12 stones, it represents the 12 tribes. When he says that when he set up the 12 tribes in the beginning, that's very important because 12 always represents government and things being in order. So Elijah began to say, I understand you're a God of order. I understand you want things to be put in a certain way. So he began to build the foundation. It's no different than when you and I are building a house in the natural. The very first thing you better do is you better get a good foundation. If you want a spiritual life that's unbreakable and unshakable, you better find some firm foundation. Elijah said, I'm going to go back and I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure and focus and I'm not going to forget about those 12 tribes that God said he was going to bless until Jesus comes back. He said, I'm not going to forget about those 12 tribes. He says, I'm going to set things in order in remembrance. And you and I, we come from a different uh, uh, covenant. The Bible says that we don't serve, uh, uh, we don't have to look back at all the 12 tribes. Our Bible says in the New Testament that there is a building block that was rejected that became the cornerstone of the whole new world and if we would get back to the foundation of Christ and Him crucified we would be unshakable we would be unmovable but He begins to put the foundation in order not wondering if God's going to move not agonizing over whether or not God's going to move but flat out 100% expecting God to move 
He lays it down, the 12 stones. And verse 32, he says he built the 12, he built the altar in the name of the Lord. And then the Bible says he made a trench about the altar. A trench about the altar. He dug it. Now, if you think about it, it's like this. It's like you, if you were building a castle and then you dug a moat around your castle. What you would actually be saying is, I want what I am building to be separate from everything else. I want what I am building to be separate from everything else. The Apostle Paul wrote to one of his churches. He said it like this. He says, I want you to be separate and I want you to come out from among them. He said, well, what do you mean? I I thought we were supposed to win the lost and I thought we were supposed to. Absolutely, you're supposed to win the lost. But let me just say this. God did not save you from death and the stench of sin so that you could be comfortable rolling around with it with the same people that he's trying to get you to witness to. He said, I want separation. He said, I understand that you are in the world, but I don't want a church that is of the world. I don't want you to look like everybody else. I don't want you to sound like everybody else. I don't want you to walk like everybody else. I don't want you to go through trials and tribulations like everybody else. You are mine and I am yours and I will never leave you, never forsake you. Be ye separate. I know we get bad news. I understand it comes in buckets. But when you are separate and you recognize, I'm not playing by your rules. My Bible says, now, thanks be unto God, which always causes me to triumph through Christ Jesus. He dug the trench. He, remember, he told him, you come here close, I want you to see this. He said, he said this is what it's about, a firm foundation. And then I need you to separate some things. Don't ever ignore that little voice that says, hey, don't watch that. Hey, don't laugh at that joke. Hey, and this is a big one. Maybe your kids shouldn't spend the night over there. It's a trench. And just like a moat, It's for your protection. So he said, dig the trench, the Bible says, and it was big enough to hold uh, uh, two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, the Bible says. He cut the bullock in pieces, the bull, laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water. And pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He said, I want you to lay the wood in order. Wood is fuel for a fire. Now, I am from a small town in East Texas. I would put my fire building skills up against almost anybody. And I'm here to tell you, if you don't lay your fuel in order, you might get a flame You might even get some heat, but you will never maximize the fire at hand. You lay the wood in order, and when you do, now you are prepared 
for what God said he's going to send. I want to give a few examples for, and I would write them down if you can, four examples of some fuel that the church of the living God can never move from. Some examples of fuel that when the fire of God comes, in order for the fire, the heat, the warmth, in other words, the effectiveness to be maximized, the wood must be laid in order. Number one, the first, would be simple. Clarity. I know that's an interesting word and when I grew up, I had to wear glasses and I didn't even know I needed them until I got them. I had no idea that trees actually had individual leaves on them. I just saw blobs. But clarity changes everything. And in the body of Christ, if we really want revival, if we really want God to move, if we're serious about serving God diligently, then there's some things that we cannot let go of. And one of them is clarity. And what I'm trying to say in common English is right is still right and wrong is still wrong. No matter what the government says, no matter what your favorite news outlet says, clarity has to be the standard in the body of Christ. We're not moving off of it. I don't care what they call marriage. I don't care what they call murder. None of those things matter to God. Therefore, they don't matter to us. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Give God a big hand of praise right there. Number two. This one's small, but don't pay attention to its size. Because sometimes it's the thing that people act like is not a big deal. You let one little mouse live in your house. Well, you know it. You got little baby mouses. And pop a rat. And it all started with just, just a little mouse. Number one, clarity. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Number two, unity. If they wave the banner of Christ, they are not against you, me, or any of us. The body of Christ needs unity. You're called to be a Christian before you're a Democrat. You're called to be a Christian before you're a Republican. You're called to be a Christian before your race. You're called to be a Christian before anything else. But it looks like such a small thing. You're called to be a Christian above every other thing that happens in your life. Clarity and unity. The third log, if you will, is one of the most powerful we have at our disposal. And if we are prepared for it, we will overwhelmingly see the benefit. But if we're not, we won't. 
worship. When you were in the world, you would shake it like a Polaroid picture. I remember when, when I was in high school, I was convinced everybody in town wanted to hear what I was listening to in my truck. So I had it turned up to the max. I had that speaker that would give you a massage while you're driving, you know what I'm talking about? I had those, those uh, glass packs that would pop a little bit when you're driving. I was not ashamed of acting like a heathen. And if I do say so myself, I was pretty doggone good at it. But when you were in the world, it seemed to not bother. But then all of a sudden, the church, the body of Christ, gets to a place where if the enemy can stop you from using one of the most powerful weapons at your disposal, how powerful is it? God used it. Not arrows, not horses, not cannons, not guns, not any of those things to knock down the biggest walls that had been built up to that time. He said, if you'll just shout unto God with a voice of triumph, you'll see the walls start falling down. We've got to get to the place where the words of our Bible become what we do not just what we read about. There are certainly some allegorical things in the Bible. But I don't think it's allegorical when the author says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. No, there's power that comes when you begin to worship God, when you begin to magnify God, when you begin to declare that I don't have it all figured out, but I serve the one who does. I don't have everything answered, but I serve the one who has all the answers. And you begin to worship even in the middle of your valley, even in the middle of your storm. Because the fire is coming. The question is, do you have a foundation that is ready? Have you dug the trench to make sure God can recognize that when that day comes, is there something separate about your Israeli house in the middle of Egypt or do you look like everybody else? In the world, but not of the world. The fuel that God chooses to maximize the effectiveness of the fire when it comes must be laid in order, clarity, unity, and worship. And then the last one may be my favorite. We live in a day, an age now where everybody's offended. I just don't like that. I wish they shouldn't have, it shouldn't have, well, they did get over it. Everybody gets offended. Everybody wants a place at the table. Everybody wants something to say. Number four, if you're taking notes. There are no other gods. None. There are no other gods. 
refuse to let a demon named Allah and his warlock named Muhammad be put in the same category and conversation as the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who will split the eastern sky. The one who told death and hell, where is your sting? The one who walked out of a grave that you should be stuck in. I refuse to put them in the same category. There is no other name whereby men can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Sit down, I'm halfway done. There is no other name. I was in college and I remember I went to a Muslim meeting because I wanted to know what's the hook. What are they doing to get Christians convinced? And I went and I listened to it and it was just totally demonic. One of the darkest rooms I've ever been in. And as I walked out, they had Korans laying on the table. And I said, well, I'd like to read that. So I grabbed one of them because they were giving them away. And I, and I, and I took it home and I, I read it. And I thought, whoa. I mean, it doesn't take long where you're like, that is so whacked out. And I threw it away. But a friend of mine had gone to the meeting too. And he brought me another copy of the Quran. He said, I thought you might want it. I said, brother, thank you very much. I'm sitting in calculus four. I grabbed the, the thing. I said, oh, thank you very much. I walked right over to the trash can and I threw it in the trash can. And this guy was sitting there and I, listen, we can be kind, we can be polite and we should. We should love, we should share, we should do all those wonderful things. But if you think that that devil-filled book is going to have my fingerprints on it and somebody read it that will send their soul to hell with my fingerprints on the cover, you are badly mistaken. My friend says, have you lost your mind, man? You're going to offend somebody. I said, have you lost your mind? You're going to offend God. There is no other God. Then the Bible says, for barrels of water one for every year of our church four always represents creative works creative means of doing something new or get this unexpected so let me just put it in layman's terms God is about to do something good in your life that you haven't even thought of now it's awesome when he does what you've prayed about and he does what you thought of and he does what you've asked him for but it's a whole nother thing when God just blows your mind with something so good that never came across your brain waves. It happened to me this week. Something that was just so good. I just, I just thought, wow. I remember I couldn't sleep. It was uh, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. I was just... I don't know how you thought of this, but it's totally awesome. Creative works in your life. Some of you have been praying that a family member would come back to God and serve God fervently, but God's going to bring them back in a very creative way, and then you're going to have to try to keep up with them. Creative. Oh, by the way, this is just a side note. You're made in his likeness. 
in his image. If he's creating things, that's why you're frustrated when you're not creating things. God bless retirement. We don't retire from the gospel. Creating things. Things that are unexpected. Four barrels of water, he says. And then he said, I want you to pour it on there. Verse 34, he said, I want you to do it a second time. He did it a second time. And he said, I want you to do it a third time. He did it a third time. Three in the Bible always represents completion. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Also always represents resurrection. New life. One chapter before, Elijah, there was a boy that was dead that was brought to him. And he stretched himself over the boy three times. Resurrection. Don't stop short of your miracle just because you can't see it yet. The water, the Bible says, ran all about the altar. And get this, it filled the trench. I remember when I was in college and I was doing some things that I shouldn't have. Don't ask my cousin about it, by the way. I had this vision. Spiritual stuff weirds you out. You're about to get weirded. I was laying on my bed. This demon of some kind put his hand on my face. As real as this thing right here. I was in that half asleep, half awake, and I was doing everything I could to try to just get out of it because I was it, was, it was terrifying. His hand right there, I could almost smell the stench of sin and wickedness. And all of a sudden, I heard this voice. It said, don't sleep long. Don't sleep long. And he laughed at me. And I woke up. And I jumped up, and my roommate was there. And... I started looking for this devil. <laughs> so I'm looking in the closet. I'm looking under the bed. I'm literally, I'm looking underneath the sink in the cabinet. And my roommate goes, what are you doing? I said, I know you saw him. He said, bro, saw what? I said, that demon. He goes, I need a new roommate. <laughs> From that day, every single day, no matter what I had done, I began to read my Bible. My friends didn't understand it. I would come home, and it would be 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and they'd just go right to sleep. I said, okay, guys, I'm a, I'll be there in a minute. I'm going to bed in a minute, whatever, because, you know, we all had roommates and stuff. And I just set that big old King James Thompson chain reference Bible that weighed about 10 pounds down. And even if I could just barely, look at my eyes were crossed, just barely read one scripture, I'd read that scripture, then I'd close it. And sometimes if I felt fear, I would just sleep with that Bible. I'd just hold it like this. We're going to have a series coming up on Wednesday nights. And I'm going to teach on some of the things that you can be exposed to that you shouldn't be when it comes to Halloween and things like that. That open things up. Deal with things you shouldn't have to deal with. Or you're, not, you're not supposed to deal with. But anyway... I would sleep with that Bible. And I remember years later when the Lord really set me free of some stuff and I began to live fervently for Him. I remember praying. I said, God, that terrified me. That 
devil put his hand on my face like that. That was just, that was too much. I said, why? Why did you let me see that? Have you ever noticed that God often answers questions with questions? He said, what did you do different? And I had to think about it. I said, well, I immediately started reading my Bible every day. He said, it was the strength of my word that kept you alive up to now. And if you had not, the strength of God's word will protect you. Four barrels of water saturated all the wood, saturated all the sacrifice, saturated the whole foundation, and then filled the trench. Water in our Bible is always representative of the water of the word. Everything that you will saturate in the Word of God becomes a landing strip for the power of God. In special operations and warfare, they will send the special ops in advance and they will, they will go and they will paint a target so that the special missile that's coming can lock onto that paint that they've put on the target and if they, they literally call it that, painting the target and then now all of a sudden that missile knows where to hit. Everything that you will saturate with the Word of God becomes a landing strip for the power of God. Not only that, when you dig that proper trench around your life that fills with water, you begin to look through and you can't get on the other side without passing through the Word. Which means as you go through life, you don't make some decisions based off what the Word says. You make every decision based off what the Word says. You begin to look through. And oh, by the way, when the enemy tries to come in like a flood, he's got to pass through the Word of the living God just to get close to you. expecting God to do something good but we have a job in this we will diligently seek him and believe that he's a rewarder the water ran about the altar filled the trench also with water verse 36 and it came to pass the time of the evening sacrifice of the offering of the evening sacrifice Elijah the prophet came near and said Lord God of Abraham Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I've done all of this at your word. Jesus was at a wedding one time and they ran out of wine and his mama said, Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus said, what's that got to do with me, mom? And she looks over at the servant and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Jesus' mother knew Jesus better than anybody on the planet. For at least nine months before he walked the earth, she knew him. And the one thing that she told the servants before the first miracle that Jesus ever performed on planet earth, according to our Bible, before it took place, she said the overwhelmingly smart words, whatever he says, do it. In your life, I, I'm here to ask you. It's Friday night. You're not here to play pity pat. You're not here to play games. You want to know what's the Lord saying. Here's what I hear the Lord saying. What has He told you to do that you haven't done? What are you intimidated about? What business idea 
What relative has he told you to witness to? But something has slowed you. Something has made you hesitant. I say what Jesus' mom said. Whatever he says, do it. It's no magic trick to living for God. It's following his word to the overwhelming best of our ability. this real strong in my spirit right now businesses what has he told you to do is there a is there a, a business and he's told you to do it I'm not telling you to do it but when it's a roaring success pay your tithes what's he telling you to do there's no there's no big it's it's listen we, we see people's success and we go, man, if I had that, then I would. No, no, no. They have that because they did this back here. They set the foundation. They dug the trench. They put the fuel and the sacrifice in order. And then they began to cry out to God. And they said, at your word, what you told me to do, I did it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Verse 37. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me. That this people might know that thou art the Lord God and that you have turned their heart and their back again. I wish somebody would put God to it. I wish somebody would ask God to do something that only he can do. I wish somebody would cut the umbilical cord to the world and say, I'm going headlong into the things of God. I wish somebody would say, I'm not putting any eggs in any other basket. I'm with him. I'm going you'll find out the minute you start praying earnest prayers is the minute you start getting earnest results or one person say one time the problem with a poor prayer life is no prayer there is no bad prayer life with prayer but we've got to get to where we push forward the kingdom and let me let me just point this out too because sometimes we read about these heroes in our bible and it's like it's like they're superman elijah was a man he had to believe God just like you, just like me. He had to believe God in the face of, get this, how many of you will show up to work tomorrow with 400 demonic prophets staring you in the face? He was a man. Faith always requires risk. 100% of the time. You cannot have faith and not have risk in the natural. You cannot be walking by faith and not have some risk in the natural. And let me just say this as a side note and then I'll move on. When you've got it all figured out, you're too late for faith to be involved. Faith is no longer active when there's not substance and evidence of things you can't see. When all the substance and evidence is on the table, that's just called obedience. That's not faith. If I tell my kids uh, uh, to, to hand me a $100 bill and there's one laying on the floor and I say, that one? There's no faith involved. They just did what I told them to do. But if I tell them, believe God with me for $100. Believe God with me for a move. Believe God. Now there's faith involved. The minute that you recognize that when you have it all figured out, you're behind schedule.
Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that you've turned their heart back again. Verse 38. When the foundation was in order, when the sacrifice was there, when the wood, the fuel was laid in order, when we begin to hold fast to clarity, unity. We get back to worship. And we decide we're not going to be rude, we're not going to be ugly. But there is no other God. We dig the trench around. It says, look, I don't want to have where I don't have access to you. I want to be effective. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But I'm not even playing by the same rules as you. I'm guilty, yet free. You're guilty and guilty. I'm guilty, yet forgiven. I'm guilty, yet empowered. I'm guilty, yet established. I'm guilty, yet he calls me his son. Then and only then, when... All things are put in line and you have done what Elijah has showed us to do. And you can't get much more diligent than this description of how he did it. Then the Bible says, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And then it licked up the water that was in the trench. I love King James for that one verse. Licked up the water that was in the trench. Sounds like something they would say where I'm from. In other words, everything that was saturated in the Word was a candidate for the fire. In 2013, we, we live in a season, we live in a time when it's not quite so popular to say the only foundation that I'm going to hold to is Christ and Him crucified. I understand you want a bigger description than that and you would like to reason with me, but if your reasoning does not include Christ and Him crucified, we are just on two different planets. And you're not going to win the lost by acting lost. Have you ever been lost and needed directions? Every wife is like, and every guy's like, not one time, never, never happened. God bless Siri, that's all I can tell you. Have you ever been lost and need directions? You're not looking for somebody that is lost also. You're looking for somebody with information that you need in the time when you need it. Can you stand to your feet with me?